0: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Roofstock, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling leased single-family homes. Are you interested in adding rental real estate to your portfolio? A recent white paper called the of Return on Everything examined global asset class returns all the way back to 1870 and concluded that residential real estate, not equity, has been the best long-run investment over the course of modern history. Roofstock offers quality pre-screened, single-family rental homes located in some of the best real estate markets in the country, with quality tenants already in place paying rent. And now you can find all of this without ever leaving your own home. Roofstock is making what used to be an incredibly long and difficult researching and buying process fast and simple. That's because they do lots of the work for you by vetting properties, tenants, and property management companies so you can have all the info you need to find the right investment for you. Generating great income from rental properties has never been simpler. To learn more, visit Roofstock.com forward slash MEB. Again, that's Roofstock.com forward slash MEB. And now, onto the show. Happy summertime podcast listeners. We're excited to have a rare in-person podcast guest. Corey Hofstein, welcome on the show. Thanks for having me here, Meb. So we have a fellow nerd. I can say that because I was an engineer once upon a time. Corey did computer science. Yes, computer science. And Computational finance. Yep, that was the grad that's, program. That's, that is that is double nerd. All right. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But he runs Newfound
1: Research, based out of you guys kind of bi coastal now. Boston mainly. Boston mainly. Trying to uh, be out here on the West Coast a little more. Not only that, there's also a Faber on the staff. There is a Faber on the are, staff. Are we
0: related? Have Has he done a 23 and Me? or Are we like second cousins? We should check because you're originally from Colorado,
1: right? And he's uh, he's in the Denver area.
0: Oh, no kidding. Well, that's that's probably a relative for sure. Is he good looking? Uh, he is a good looking guy. <laughs> well, good. Brilliant and good looking. That's a good comment. All right. So for those who aren't familiar with Corey, he is a prolific writer. He's got a chapter in our new Curated book, the best investment writing. He does a. Is it a weekly column? It is. When does it it come out? Sundays. Monday morning. Monday mornings. That is really to to give you a compliment. One of one of the best reads of the week each week. But I mean, it has everything from pretty generic sounding titles like "Should We Be Holding More Cash" to the super nerds out there combining tactical views with Black Letterman and entropy pooling. I don't even know what that means. But why don't we get started by? I mean, dis- despite your somewhat young age, you're now just celebrating your third decade. Congratulations.: Thank you. I saw a great post the other day that kind of listed some of your bucket list items from your twenties, and hopefully we can talk a little bit about more about what what your bucket list items for your thirties are and 40s, which I just joined regrettably. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very little. but let's let's talk a little bit about maybe the transition to starting your own company at the depths of the bear market and, and talk a little bit about Newfound and then we'll get into your investing framework and go from
1: there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Newfound did get its start August 2008. So we're actually about to hit our nine nine year birthday on on Newfound, which as you mentioned, was was starting towards the depths of the Great Recession there. And I would like to pretend that we started with some grand vision, but I we really just tripped and fell into this. I had been working on some model portfolios designed around ETF sector rotation and the ability to go to cash. And I'm happy to go into how I even stumbled into that, but found a portfolio manager in the Boston area who was interested in licensing some data from me. And so at that time, I was a poor college student. I was planning on going off to graduate school. And said, absolutely. So I, I created this company, Newfound Research, named it after a lake that I grew up on. Where is that? That's in New Hampshire. Oh, no kidding. I or lived New- in New Hampshire
0: briefly. Not sure where. I was like Not two. Sure. I was like two, but I'm, I'm told I I did a stint there.
1: Okay, keep yeah. going. So again, just named it after a lake I grew up on. No no long-term plan of grow this thing. Was going to go to graduate school. Figured I'd end up at one of the big banks doing derivatives modeling or something like that. And found after 2008. Obviously, there was a large appetite for tactical portfolios. Risk management really became forefront for people. Funny how a 50% decline will do that. Absolutely, right? It's, uh, everyone's focused on it. Probably at the time, they should have been piling in to risk on assets. Instead, they're focusing on risk off. But Regardless, we saw a large appetite, and so Newfound really blossomed from there. We spent the first several years not actually offering portfolios ourselves, but more sub-advisory style roles. We would work with large RIA groups or institutions to develop custom tactical overlays, develop custom model portfolios. And then towards the end of 2013, ultimately ended up launching our own suite of products. And where we really sit is what I would call the quantitative tactical asset allocation space. So we focus mostly on portfolio construction, tactical allocation, but everything we do is systematic. The conventional investment styles, momentum value, carry defensive trend, Uh, sort of what AQR has made so popular. And that's really where we focus most of our research endeavors. Music
0: to my ears. And saw you guys, by the way, congrats. You won ETF Strategist of the Year last year. So thank you. All right. So you got funds, you got separate accounts, you got some advisory business, you know, some focusing on advisors, individuals, institutions, everything in between. What's kind of like the general... 10,000-foot framework. And then we'll kind of start talking about, you know, all sorts of different ideas and topics. But what's y'all's general? I mean, when you say global tactical, I know you just did a recent paper on this, like the basics of GTA
1: or something like that. Yeah. Do I have that right? Yeah, you, yeah, it was sort of a... Um, a, a gentle, gentle guide. guide. There yeah. we go. Found it. Okay. You know, I think a lot of firms... In in asset management, define themselves as the product they offer, right? So we're the small cap value guys or or we're the dividend growth people. I think what makes Newfound a little unique is we don't tend to think of a specific product that we offer, a specific style defining our philosophy. We say that we like to invest at the intersection of quantitative and behavioral finance. So our big philosophies are a consistent, well-researched process. That's the quantitative side. But the behavioral side is a recognition that even if you have the most optimal portfolio that you can design, one of the most important things is whether... Investors have the capacity and ability to stick with it over time, because if they can't stick with it, if, if it's going to suffer that 50, 70 percent drawdown before it returns 500 percent, most people are going to end up bailing out. And so for us, it's that recognition of the journey being just as important as the destination for achieving strong long term performance.
0: And, and the challenge with this is we talk so much about it. You can try to educate investors on that topic but so many have to live through it till they kind of do it again. It's like telling a child, you know, don't touch the hot stove, and eventually they touch it, and then they say, okay, well, that was stupid. I'll never do that again. But it's kind of the same way with behavioral. And so, quantitative behavioral. Do you guys call it QB, or am I just making that up?
1: Well, so we have we have a suite of uh, strategic portfolios that we offer called QB, okay, Cube. I, again, a blend of the quantitative and behavioral. The idea being that we're embedding a lot of the quantitative techniques. But explicitly taking into account behavioral biases that investors have for a preference for smoothness of the journey, fewer drawdowns, more shallow drawdowns, an acknowledgement that most investors need some sort of home market bias, which you've written about numerous times, acknowledging that while that might be objectively suboptimal, if you don't embed those concepts, investors may not be able to stick with the portfolio.
0: And so what's, what's kind of your starting point? Is it, you know, you're, when you're thinking about all this, is your starting point when you're talking to an advisor and investor, is it, you're looking at their current portfolio and saying, Hey, look, here's how you can overlay or add all these concepts and ideas, or is it, you know, kind of a a blank slate saying, no, 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 here's how you start from kind of the bottom up. Like, like, so when you're saying GTA or tactical asset allocations, a lot of people, that means a lot of different things. So, So for one shop, if you look at like a lot of the the banks, they'll say, okay, our tactical is we move from 60-40, then when we're really bullish, we'll be 70-30, when we're really bearish, we'll be 50-50. You know, so that's, it's not this, it doesn't really move the needle at all. And some are totally different where tactical means something completely opposite. What's, what's kind of like your general thoughts on that? You know, how how do you guys approach tactical in general? Like, what, what, what does that mean to you?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to have a completely cop-out answer here for you. To me, again, it really depends on who we're working with. There are a variety of needs when it comes to tactical. Our view is there is no holy grail. I like to say that in this industry, hubris tends to sell, but humility tends to survive. People will say that they have the best investment product, that they have the best way of designing a portfolio, when in reality, almost every investment style goes in or out of favor at some point. And for us, it's all about balancing the risks. So we have some portfolios that are highly tactical. We'll go 100% invested to 100% cash. And when we talk about those portfolios with investors, we would advocate them as a use of what we call a completion portfolio. What does that mean? It fits as a niche within a larger strategic allocation. It's was, not- that, was that was that what some people would call like a core satellite? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So it'd be more of a satellite. And then we have other products that are designed in mind of being 100% of a client solution. So it's more of a global, balanced, balancing risks type of portfolio that will likely be far less tactical, uh, maybe more around the fringes because we find, again, behaviorally that's what people can stick with.
0: Interesting. So so let's say a
1: billion dollar RIA came
0: up to you and said, Corey, I lived through 2000, 2008. I'm not really comfortable with my allocation. I'm going to give you a blank slate. Here's a billion dollars across client assets. What, what would kind of be your starting point? Do you have one? Is that a tough question? That, that is a very tough question. I'm a question. $10 billion money manager. Yeah. <laughs> Incentivize you. But like, kind of talk to me as is, is from the default of the two sides of your portfolios, you know, whether it's the completion, whether it's whatever solution it may be, is there kind of a, a default at all? Or, I mean, is, is there something that like, you know, to, to, or to maybe even go with some of the underlying thematics, you know, yeah. so whether is it value or trend following, like what, what goes into this you know, stone stone soup sort of idea. Like what what's right. what's part of this?
1: So we've actually we've dealt with those situations where we've had large RIAs come to us and ask to help rebuild their portfolios. And often, again, it's it's very customized because they're often coming to us with pre-existing philosophy. And so we're trying to obviously merge with their pre-existing philosophy with some of our philosophies. Taking a step back, there's one concept to me that is very foundational to newfound. And it actually came from my time in graduate school. So you mentioned my degree in computational finance. I got that from Carnegie Mellon. And that is a degree that's very focused on the construction of derivative contracts. So it's all about pricing and designing and creation of derivatives. And one of the things that I learned that really changed my view on the industry going through that program was That entire program was really less about return, less about generating return and much more about risk. It was about the identification, location, extraction, pricing and trading of risk. That's really what to me a derivative contract really embodies. And I took that viewpoint and really that's how I see the entire financial industry now. So, for example, to totally change the subject for a moment, a company raising capital. Selling equity, for example, is the founder trying to reduce the risk of going out of business in the short term. And they're willing to identify, extract, and sell that risk to someone else. And the investor who's buying that equity is taking on that risk, injecting some cash, but they're getting the upside. So this idea for me of everything being about risk transformed into this catchphrase that we use all the time, which is risk cannot be destroyed only transformed. And that, to me, is a very foundational underpinning of all the portfolios we build. So to bring it back to your original question, when we start designing portfolios, for us, it is 100% about the balance of risk, the balance of a strategic approach and a tactical approach, the balance of value and momentum. Um, In everything we do, we are trying to acknowledge that there is no holy grail investment strategy And how can we balance all these different types of approaches that may do well in different environments to create a more resilient portfolio?
0: So very zen. There actually is the holy grail, but I won't tell you where it is until you turn 40. So you got to go look for another decade. (laughs) All right, I'll Um, keep searching. Good. Well, look, I have about 15 different abstracts in front of me. So we may dance around a little bit, but maybe a useful framework would be to talk a little bit about the way the world looks today. And then kind of go through potential solutions or what it may look like. You did a great PDF that we'll link to in the show notes if, if we're allowed to. Maybe we'll, we'll have to put a link to, to your site to download it because I think it's for professionals only. But it's called Portfolios in Wonderland, which when I first read the title, I wasn't sure if it was a reference to John Mayer or Alice in Wonderland. You know that My Body is a Wonderland? Yeah. Yeah.
1: That would be a little harder to work into. I don't a, know. I mean, this,
0: it's it's pretty, um, you, you may get a d- totally different demographic downloading this paper. Anyway, you start out by talking about the way the world looks today. And we've mentioned this a lot on the podcast where a lot of other quant shops and people, we did a tweet, I remember, where we said something along the lines of, you know, the historic real returns of equities in the U.S. since 1900 were like 6.7% ballpark. And foreign and globally, it was it was, lower. it was maybe down around five something. And then we looked at like five of the most famous investors, Jack Bogle, there was AQR, Professor Schiller, GMO. So Grantham and, and Hussman, all these people, not a single one was close to the expected returns historically. So they all forecasted lower, which I agree with. Part of me, of course, wants to be contrarian and say, well, maybe there's something we're really missing. But but tell us a little bit about, you know, because that totally changes the framework in my mind where if the opportunity set isn't always the same, the, the famous, you know, is it a fat pitch? Is it something you should just wait on? And so you have this like 50 page document we can kind of go through, but why don't you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about the, the this concept, portfolios in Wonderland, and uh, I'll let you just riff from there and then we can go yeah. down whatever dark alley we want.
1: Yeah, so you sort of teed it up nicely, this idea that where we are today from whether it's equity valuations or interest rates, it's a very unique environment. And you know, one of the things that I think is important is, and I'm sure you see these every year, Meb, I mean firms publish these massive glossy market outlooks right and they're 70 pages long and they're filled with impressive data sets and the reality is it's it's more in my opinion macro tourism than anything than really practical advice for investors but for the you know 99 percent of investors in the u.s all they really care about is how are u.s equities likely to perform and how is u.s fixed income likely to perform and the reality is in the short term it's pretty random you know, predicting in the next year is very, very difficult. I've never seen a good model that could consistently do it. But when you start looking out seven to 10 years, there are these guideposts. And, and valuation is one of the great guideposts that you can look at and say, when equities have a high valuation, a high CAPE or something like that, it tends to lead to lower expected returns. Or for on the fixed income side, When you look at there being low nominal or real interest rates, it tends to be, therefore, low future returns on fixed income. Now, historically, if you look at equity valuations and fixed income valuations, over the last, call it 100, 120 years, typically one would zig and the other would zag. And so if you looked at a portfolio, the valuation of, call it a 60-40 or a 50-50, it was always pretty fairly valued. And then something changed in the 80s, both fixed income and equities got very, very cheap. And there was probably no better time to go passive. So when I look at the history of Vanguard, I say, wow, what a time to to launch passive equity funds and passive fixed income. Because really, just from a pure investment standpoint, you couldn't do much better than just buying cheap beta. But today you have the exact opposite, which is high equity valuations. We're, We're touching north of 30 and the projected return is, is much lower than the historical average that most people have come to expect with U.S. equities over the long run. And you look at U.S. fixed income, it's even easier to project because the yield you buy today is more or less the return you're going to get over the next 7 to 10 years. And there's some very simple rules of thumb that we can talk about there and sort of predicting bond returns. Go ahead. No, let's pause. Like, what, What's a good rule of thumb? Yeah. So one of my favorites is, is this rule called two times duration minus one. And it's a little complicated in name, but it's a very simple idea, which is you take the current yield to maturity of a bond portfolio and you take the current duration and you multiply that duration by two, subtract one. So let's use a a specific example. Let's say uh, the Barclays aggregate today. Okay. Let's call it a duration of around Mm 5.5. Double that, we're at 11. Subtract one, we're at 10. So over the next 10 years, your expected return is the current yield to maturity. So if the current yield to maturity is around two and a half, two and three quarters, well, that's what you can expect your return from holding the Barclays aggregate to be over the next 10 years. It's not great. It's not great. And in in real terms, it's it's likely even worse, right? And so for most investors who maybe look at the last 30 or 40 years, where they got on average a 6% nominal return in the Barclays aggregate, a 60-40 was much more attractive than it is today, where you've got 40% of your assets in an asset class that after inflation might return next to nothing. And and you had a whole piece
0: on this, on, on bonds, where you guys said, did declining rates, because a lot of people would say, you know, you talk about risk parity, you talk about bonds in general. I say, well, you had this thirty-year bull market where the bonds just declined from double-digit yields in the eighties all the way down to super low digits now, and sure enough, we're going to have super runaway inflation and bond yields are going to go from two to five, ten percent. But you said you had a piece that did declining rates actually
1: matter over the last
0: 35 years and kind of what was what was the conclusion there
1: yeah so like you you do this a lot is there's a lot of conventional wisdom on wall street that isn't necessarily backed up empirically and i actually started this piece by by shooting out a tweet i'm not as prolific a tweeter as as you are meb but uh mine's mostly a bot That's good to know. That's why I can't keep up. It's the Jeff Rimsberg bot. He just tweets away. So what I wanted to do is most of my following tends to be professional investors. I simply wanted to ask, you know, we hear this idea that declining rates was a really large contributor to returns over the last 30 years for fixed income. How much did it really contribute? And so I asked out on Twitter and I probably got about 100 responses or so and said, did you think it made up 25% of returns? 50, 75%? And over 50% of people who responded said it made up more than 50% of returns. So then all I simply did was decompose returns over the last 30 years for the Barclays aggregate saying, well, how much actually came from the yield from the coupon you earned from holding the bond versus how much benefit did you actually get from declining rates and rolling that portfolio, getting that roll yield? And what I found was it was... Really, the vast, vast, vast majority of the return, whether you're looking at treasuries or a broad portfolio like the Barclays aggregate, was due simply to the fact that there were high on average yields. That your average coupon was about 6% and that declining rates really only added a couple 50, 60, 70 basis points per year. Nothing to to sneeze at for sure, but it wasn't the biggest driver. And... The flip side of that is for people who are very worried about rising rates, if your outlook, if your horizon is 10, 20 years, you really shouldn't be that concerned about rising rates. What you should be concerned about is that the average yield that we're starting with is so low that that's going to be the big drag on returns. There's just not enough yield to generate a meaningful total return.
0: Makes sense. And so, by the way, I loved your... Phrase macro tourists. No one gets more in trouble than the equity guys venturing into macro. And if you see, if you are, if you have a equity portfolio manager, all of a sudden is talking about gold and macro and the dollar. It's like the biggest sell signal ever. We, our friend, um, the Stalwart at Bloomberg, Weisenthal. And I used to have a great phrase called macro bullshitters. And so we registered the domain. And I said I was going to give it to Joe and let him run with it. But
1: I don't well, it's so, I, said, it, I said I want you to do a Bloomberg segment called macro bullshitters. But it's hard because it's it's attractive, right? I mean, it's hard to not play in that macro space because it's it's fun to think about all the things that can go right or wrong. But I think when you take a step back and say, well, you read these papers and they they line up everything nicely like dominoes, right? Where they say this is this is what's going to happen in China and that's what's going to. Happened with oil, and it's all nicely cascading into each other. And the reality is, it's more like chaos theory than than dominoes. That's
0: the secret to becoming a financial pundit: is as soon as you lead with QE and the Fed, and you can throw gold and cryptocurrencies in there, all that good stuff. That's what gets the good use. All right, we'll keep going. All right, so U.S. and equities and bonds. I think you know you show it's like bottom decile. For this 60-40 portfolio, it's maybe even bottom 5%. So kind of poopy returns going forward expected. What's kind of the solution? What's the next steps for this sort of portfolio? Is there anything you do? Just put your head in the sand? Ostr- yeah, so, the
1: ostrich portfolio? So there, that's certainly not great news for financial planners who are, you know, historically reliant on U.S. stocks and bonds. I look at the last 10 years, 15, 20 years even, and say there has been a really positive trend though which is to me the proliferation of asset classes that used to simply be in the hedge fund space coming downstream and coming downstream in a very cost-efficient manner that advisors and investors can now use to build portfolios that are more well diversified and potentially can still hit a reasonable expected rate of return i don't think the eight nine ten percent return is realistic today unless you're going you know, 100% emerging markets. But I do think that if you're willing to diversify away from traditional US asset classes, that there are a lot of places of strong return. Give us some examples. Yeah. By what do you mean? So one of the things we pretty frequently look at is we look at the published capital market assumptions. And by that, I mean expected returns and volatilities of different asset classes from firms like JP Morgan, research affiliates, GMO, you you name several. And we actually go through the process of building an optimized portfolio using that mean variance framework, that modern portfolio theory framework to actually say, well, if we want a moderately risky portfolio, what asset allocation would generate the maximum return? And what we see is that U.S. equities would almost be non-existent. That if you just let an optimizer do its thing, not knowing which asset class is which, just simply focusing on return and risk and how things balance each other out, you would almost have no equity exposure in the U.S. and you would almost have no traditional fixed income exposure. Instead, you'd end up with a lot of emerging market exposure. You'd end up with a lot of alternatives exposure, things like managed futures, And you'd end up with a lot of exposure and asset classes that we would probably put in like a credit category. High yield bonds, bank loans, emerging market debt, both local currency and U.S. dollar denominated. Things like REITs, all of which are available today in ETFs that cost less than 50 basis points. I don't think you could get that 15, 20 years ago. And they would make up a very large part, call it 30 to 50 percent of the portfolio. Now again going back to okay that's our quantitative direction saying these are the asset classes we need to focus on. Behaviorally I recognize that very few investors in the US could probably tolerate a portfolio that has 0% allocated to the S&P 500, but finding a balance to start incorporating some of these asset classes we think is important not only for their diversification benefits but from their higher if not equal expected return to traditional equities. You know, it's
0: funny. I always think about the kind of the the mean variance and thinking about ideas where, you know, a lot of these firms will publish these forecasts and we always talk about being asset class agnostic, you know, and trying not to get wedded to, I'm a gold bug or I'm a dividend guy or whatever it may be. So it's, it's such an interesting ex- thought experiment to go through something like this. And, and if you say, you know what, I'm just going to blind all the asset classes and see what it, it kicks out because what it kicks out is often something no one will invest in. Let's so see, like you mentioned, like even if you use their own numbers, it's highly unlikely that all the firms you just mentioned are going to totally exclude US stocks and bonds despite their own arithmetic because there's career risk there. And if US stocks and bonds rip for another year or two and they have, you know, hundreds of billions of assets coming out then that was probably a really dumb business decision despite the fact their own math proves that they should be different so it's kind of an interesting concept to it's almost like you could have a portfolio that's like a, like a lockbox but like I'm not going to tell you what's in it till a year later and then we're going to rebalance and it's just going to use your own math but but it's hard for people right you know people often look at a lot of stuff we do and they they say man that's that's unconventional and when i think when we were at the um, the Ritholtz evidence-based East conference. I, I said some, along the same line. Said, look, if you're truly evidence-based, and I was talking about managed futures. I said the allocator would spit out five, ten, fifty percent to this asset class or strategy, rather. Anyway, okay. So you come up with a somewhat atypical allocation, but the behavioral part you're talking about, meaning it, there's still an anchor to. That traditional world.
1: Yeah, I think that's the next step. And, and you mentioned managed futures, which I think is a great example. Yeah, the optimizer typically spits out for us that you should have 5, 10, 15%. One of the things that the optimizer has been spitting out lately is the idea of barbelling risk. So I mentioned there's very little allocation to traditional fixed income in in this sort of optimal portfolio. But that allocation that does exist tends to be very long-dated U.S. treasuries. So you say to an investor, I've got this optimal portfolio for you. It's 10-15% managed futures. It's 10-15% 20-plus year U.S. treasuries, zero U.S. equities, emerging market debt, emerging market equities. And when you go through piece by piece, it sounds absolutely insane, right? No one would hold it. But when you look at it from the way the optimizer is seeing it, you're getting a portfolio where risks are really being balanced. That, yeah, maybe the outlook for traditional 20-year fixed income isn't great, but when you look at the assumptions of how it's going to diversify risk if things go bad on the equity side, well, it makes a lot of sense. That said, again, going back to that idea that the investment journey is very important. Investors need to be able to stick with the portfolio first and foremost, What we do is then have a second step and say, this might be the optimal portfolio objectively, but how do we actually try to build back in considerations for traditional benchmarks? We are willing to then say, okay, the optimizer may want us to have a 0% allocation to U.S. equities. That's not realistic. Let's build back in a meaningful enough allocation to U.S. equities and make sure that the optimizer takes that into account, maybe have some sort of Minimum threshold that has to be there so that this portfolio doesn't look so weird that the second it does something strange, the investor completely abandons it.
0: So, the next question would be you know, if you're saying from a whether it's sharp or return versus risk sort of perspective, the best portfolio for investors may not be the one that actually has the algorithmic best best returns. I wonder how much sort of like behavioral drag there may be on that portfolio, you know, just to keep them from doing dumb things. So like you said, the ideal portfolio right now is emerging market stocks, long-term treasuries, yada, yada. I wonder if you've ever looked at modeled the kind of buffer of how much they're giving up just by having a more strategic kind of foundation.
1: Yeah, so we have, it's a little bit of an assumption you have to make to say, okay, how much do I have to buffer in? Really, if we were a little more quantitative about it, you'd probably say, okay, what does the market really bear here? How how different and weird can we get before people start abandoning it? Um, but what we found is in an environment like you have today... Um, you were probably giving up between 50 to 100 basis points of return for us to still build a meaningful amount of traditional U.S. equities, large cap equities in there, and a, and a meaningful amount of um, traditional U.S. sort of Barclays aggregate fixed income. Um, and it doesn't sound like a lot, you know, 50 to 100 basis points, but over the long run, that is a really meaningful difference that can compound. Uh, so we think that there is... Again, a, a big behavioral—I don't want to call it a drag—but um, a, a big behavioral component as to what makes a portfolio actually achievable for an investor. Because a, a drag implies they're giving something up. In my opinion, that optimal portfolio is never actually achievable for most investors anyway.
0: That, that makes total sense. Although I think maybe we should start an ETF called the Weird ETF, and we'll let we'll let you manage it, where it just has the totally unconstrained portfolio. That sounds great. We do we have think of tickers. Listeners, send us tickers for the weird ETF. Winner winner gets a free idea farm subscription. All right. So you develop this portfolio. When you think of sort of the, a lot of these asset classes are long only sort of stuff. And you mentioned trend following, but what, what sort of actual, as we start to think of active, whether it's rules-based or tactical, sort of tilts or implementations what what sort of categories do you look at other than say managed futures and trend what what else is out there value perhaps what yeah. do you guys look
1: at so there's there's a lot of things you can look at when we're building portfolios like these we typically start from an asset allocation perspective and in the asset allocation that's when we start to bring in things like value so you can do these capital market assumptions i mentioned with no Concept of value. You can simply, for example, with US equities, you would look at your expected long term growth rate and probably the yield. On the other hand, you could say, let me look at the long term growth rate yield and some expected mean reversion because CAPE is so high. We do the latter. So value gets built right in, you know, in this sense to the optimization. And that's part of what makes it look so weird today that these valuations are so meaningfully different than they have historically been. Once you get that asset allocation all set, then it comes down to actually implementation. And that's where I think things like when you look at equities, how are you actually implementing that small cap exposure? Is it just pure small cap beta? Or do you look at some of the empirical evidence that suggests small cap is much better with a quality value tilt? Do you look at U.S. large cap or international and say, I think we should do a multi-factor value momentum size, quality tilt, what have you and so we sort of look at that across the board. There are some places where there simply is not product uh, to implement some of these tilts. I think like, fixed like income, what? let's hear it. I think fixed income is an area that's still very nascent with a lot of these tilts and I think it's just harder from a research perspective to try to identify what's effective in those areas. but you certainly see a massive proliferation of factor based on the equity side. And so you can get very low cost factor type portfolios, value, momentum, quality, that sort of stuff. On the fixed income side, uh, you tend to still see a lot of more active management. And then on the alternative side, you are seeing some interesting product come downstream. I think AQR has has had a lot to do with that, certainly. Um, but there's still limitations on shorting leverage that really sort of limit the true diversification that some of this stuff can, can add to the portfolio.
0: We, we have a list in my office, a whiteboard of, of kind of ideas we love that the problem, a lot of them aren't really that appropriate for a mutual fund or ETF structure, like catastrophe bonds. What a cool asset class that correlates to really nothing, but you can't really put into a public fund that easy. It, it is odd. A lot of the inverse funds are still really expensive, the short funds. And I don't know why that, that's the case, but opportunity for someone, not us. Let's pause for a moment to hear again from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Roofstock, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling least single-family rental homes. I actually interviewed Roofstock's founders, Gary and Gregor, back in episode 63, and I was genuinely impressed with how these guys are radically simplifying rental real estate investing. The process used to be incredibly time-intensive. First, you had to identify a market, look at tons of homes, then do some due diligence, make some offers, negotiate the price, and finally buy, and then... You had to find a property manager to handle leasing and operations for you. What a nightmare. I've always been gun-shy about rental real estate investing due to these various operational headaches that can come with it, but Roofstock has changed all that. Every one of these properties comes leased up and pre-certified by the Roofstock team. They even connect you with vetted property managers who handle all of the day-to-day headaches for you. To browse properties all over the country, including locally here in Los Angeles and even my hometown in Winston-Salem. And learn more about how to generate real estate income with peace of mind, visit RoofStock.com forward slash MEB. Again, that's RoofStock.com forward slash MEB. And now, back to the show. So what's kind of your process? I imagine it's like a constant evolution, right? You guys are always doing research, looking at peer-reviewed stuff, adding it as it comes along. What's that process like? Is it just kind of, you know, is it a little just ongoing? You know, I, I I know we struggle with it a lot here on just keeping up with all the new funds coming out and all the new strategies, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, how, how are you guys? What's y'all's
1: approach? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> we come at it with the view, by and large, that well, we're skeptical. Let me just start, start there. Everything new that comes out, we tend to be just very highly skeptical as people. Uh, my fiance would probably say I'm a complete downer. But the reality is, in our view, there there really isn't a whole lot that we know in the world of finance for certain. And what I mean by that is, um, in physics, there are certain laws that may not be perfectly true, but they are good enough. I can put my hand on the table and push as hard as I want, and my hand's probably not going to phase through the table, right? This
0: if- is a pretty cheap table, actually. There's a good chance you'd go straight straight through <laughs> this thing.
1: But But in finance... And in markets in particular, there's no holy rules. There's sort of supply and demand, and that's about it. And everything else, we have to look back at history and try to determine whether past performance actually is indicative of future results, right? So every disclosure in the industry says past performance is not indicative. And yet everything we know about active management assumes just the opposite. Value, momentum, size, these are all based on things that have historically worked, That we're going to assume actually do work going forward. And I think there's evidence you can look at. But the thing about statistics is that it can never prove a positive. And so we can never prove for certain momentum works. We can never prove for certain value works. So there's a certain amount of faith to it. So a lot of our research that we do is just ongoing exploration of do we actually think there is evidence to support what we're using? Does this apply in other areas of the market? You know, we hear U.S. sector rotation with momentum is such a great strategy. Well, how many ways can we slice and dice this? One of the areas that we focus a lot on is how much complexity should you really bring to building a portfolio? You can generically talk about something like value or momentum, but the way you actually implement it, some of the small details can make a huge meaningful difference for the investor experience. Like what? Well, one of the ones, and I've talked with you about this, Meb, but one of the one of the small details that I think is really important is in the trend following space. So just as a very simple example, we'll go back to your, your famous paper, that 10-month moving average, where you will invest in an asset class at the end of every month, right? If it's above its 10-month moving average. And then if it's below, you'll sell out. That strategy has had empirically an enormous amount of success uh, in improving both sort of the risk adjusted and total return for investors. But in my opinion, it introduces a lot of what I I like to call timing luck into the equation. I I like to call it the 1987 example. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't always work for protecting against your 1987s, but also it's highly influenced by what's going on in the market when you choose to rebalance. So if we rewind a couple of years, January 2014, I think it was, yep, January 2014, if you recall, the market sold off five or 6%. It was one of the worst Januaries the market has ever had. If you had a tactical strategy that was rebalancing at the end of every month, you might've chosen to de-risk at the end of the month. February, the market immediately rebounded. So if you had rebalanced at the end of the month, you were highly subject to what the market had done. Fast forward a couple of months, October 2014, market sells off six or seven, 8% mid month. By end of month, it was flat to positive. So if you were rebalancing end of month, it was like nothing had ever happened. So when you choose to rebalance, actually makes a huge impact on your returns. Simple answer is just be lucky. Well, that's you know that's I mean, why I call it timing luck. That,
0: that's one of the things you know. A lot of these binary outcomes, and it applies to so many things: buying stocks, shorting stocks, going long, short market, and, and investors so often want to think in binary terms. So I can't tell you, and I'm sure that this is the same experience with you. So many investors and advisors, and even institutions I talk to, the question is yes, no. Should I be invested in gold? And it's never, hey, should I sell? Come up with a five-year plan to sell ten percent of my gold each year. Is it's never I'm going to have a system like you talk to a cryptocurrency investor right now, and and I have so many friends that talk to me right now, and they say, Matt, what do you think about Bitcoin? You know, should I buy some? I'm like, I don't care if you buy some or not. What do you plan on doing after you have it? And it's the same thing almost in any investment is it like they don't have a system or a way of thinking about what to do on the other side. So there's lots of ways to diversify. I think this problem, right, right. So you could use multiple parameters. Yep. So like the 1987 is a great example. If you use something like a 200 day moving average or shorter, you would have missed the crash longer. You would have been in right. Big time outcome difference. But maybe if you use three different moving averages, you would have had a blended exposure and of course, using a lot of other markets as well.
1: Yep. So so I think that's a perfect example. You can use different signals, right? You can diversify your signals. I think that's a you know, you can go big picture and say that's why value and momentum work so well together. But if you're just doing a trend following and you see this in Managed Futures all the time, using different signals to size your total exposure to an asset class, uh, our preference at Newfound is actually to dollar cost average in and out. So it's almost like running uh, multiple uh, portfolios under the hood. One that rebalances, for example, once a month, but on a different week of the month. But you can just think of it as dollar cost averaging. It all more or less has the same impact, which is it really reduces this impact of timing luck, but it cuts both ways. So you may not get the whipsaw in something like a January 2014 because you're not reallocating 100% of your portfolio at the end of the month, but because you are dollar cost averaging, you may get more whipsaw in an October 2014. And so what it means is there are going to be environments that you help mitigate whipsaw, and there's going to be environments where you might create a little more whipsaw. But over the long run, we believe that it more or less helps diversify out this timing risk.
0: You get you get the blended average. And the, the problem exactly. with the end investor a lot of times is the same thing with diversification. It's the same thing with this is a lot of them simply like to gamble. And so it's nothing to cheer for. Like they want to be, I'm out. I want the market to crash and I'm excited about it. You know, in a diversified portfolio that owns these 30 different investments with active strategies that are blended,
1: is a lot more boring. Well, it's definitely a lot more boring. I also think the other hard part for most investors is they're very used to the concept that the proof is in the eating of the pudding. That what is more proof than returns? That if I say to you, over the long run, I believe that this methodology is not just empirically superior, but mathematically provably superior, and then I underperform the basic MEB Faber end of month strategy for the next three years – most investors would say, well, clearly it doesn't work. And when you come at markets from a mathematical perspective, your definition of long run is 20, 30, 40 years. But again, most investors don't have the wherewithal to stick with something that long.
0: And that also doesn't match up with the career risk of trying to stay in business. And so talk to me a little bit about this. I know you had a piece called outperforming by underperforming. and We've had many conversations. We did this office hours with investors where they would say, Meb, you know, can you tell me about your last three months performance? And I would just kind of giggle. And then and they would say something like, well, how long should I use to evaluate your strategy? And I said, well, how about the next five to 10 years? And they would laugh again. Then it would just be silence on the phone. And I said, well, serious, you know, if you're looking at a long-term approach, and then, you guys actually touched on this as well, but the classic example of Buffett, where you had a great slide deck that showed, you know, underperformance and outperformance. And despite the fact he would have beaten, I think, 99% of all mutual funds since 2000, he's underperformed like eight or nine in the last 10 years. So talk to us a little bit about this piece and underperformance cycles in general, and kind of the conversations you have with investors, because this prop, this period since 2009 has been really hard for most active tactical people that are anything other than US 6040. Right. Like that's crushed, absolutely crushed everything else in the world. Give, give us some thoughts on that. Open mic.
1: So, So Warren Buffett is one of my favorite examples, because I think I think most people know who he is, know his track record. He has provably outperformed the market. And so when you are offering a strategy, often people will be perhaps skeptical of your performance. You mentioned it, you know, why have you underperformed over the last three months? You get those questions uh, as a boutique asset manager, whereas Warren Buffett sort of gets a pass because of his long-term performance. So I love using Warren Buffett as as my favorite example. And you mentioned some of the unbelievable stats since 2000. If you go back even further since Berkshire Hathaway went public and you compare the performance of Berkshire Hathaway stock to any other company that's been around just as long or any other mutual fund that's been around, again, he he outperforms 99%, if not 100% of them on a total return and risk-adjusted return basis. So you mentioned that track record, and then I always like when I'm in front of an audience using this slide deck, before I flip to the next slide, I always ask a question, which is, all right, hands up. How many of you think Warren Buffett's worst trailing performance over any one year period to the market was, the S&P 500 was worse than 5%? You know, so the market was up 10, he was up five. And a lot, most hands go up. All right, what about 10%? Well, you know, can you really outperform by that much if you underperform by 10% at one point? Then you might get half the hands up. 15. All right, you might have one or two brave souls. Then you get to 20 and everyone's hands are down. There's no way he ever underperformed by more than 20%. The reality is he underperformed by 50, 60% in a one-year period during the dot-com days. And not only was it 60%, it was the market was up 40 and he was down 20. Oish. Right? And I always say his genius, well, he has multiple geniuses, but permanent capital, right? If he was running a mutual fund company, he would have been out of business. Gone, baby, gone. Right? He would have just would have been gone. And that wasn't just a one-time thing. Warren Buffett has underperformed the market by 30% or more over rolling one-year periods five or six times. In fact, he almost every five years has underperformed by 20% at least once. And so if you did this concept of let me you know, do a stop loss on my manager's, you would be getting out of war at all the wrong times. And for us, what that brings us back to is if you want to be different than the market, it means you're going to have to likely underperform the market at some time. That there's, again, no holy grail that if there were some strategy that could just always consistently outperform the market, what would happen is investors would flock to it. And if investors all flock to that strategy, those assets, whatever it's buying, are going to get all bid up. Their prices are going to go up, their valuations are going to go up and it's going to drive their performance down. And, and we have some very real examples of that. I mean I think the one a lot of people talk
0: about is you know some of the value anomalies getting published, the most famous probably being price to book. And then dimensional fund advisors as well as a gazillion other quant shops say, well, all right, we're going to start building portfolios based on value and use price to book. Next thing you know, DFA is a $500 billion shop and price to book has been one of the worst value factors for a long time.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So our view is, and and you've had the guys from Alpha Architect on on the podcast mention this as well, for something to work, it's got to be hard. It's got to be so difficult that most investors don't actually want to do it. And you look at the performance of Berkshire and you say, wow, most people probably wouldn't be able to stomach that underperformance, that performance difference to the broad market. And Buffett's ability to stick with his process during a period like 1999 really says something about his long-term ability to generate outperformance. So when I talk to someone about, okay, you've underperformed over the last three months, well, using Buffett as the example and saying, if you really want exceptional long-term performance, you need to understand these things have to underperform. There is no strategy that can always outperform because it's an arbitrage. If you always outperform the market, well, I'll just buy that strategy, short the S&P 500, and I'm printing money. Now, the, converse, the inverse of that is there's never a strategy that should always be able to underperform if you ignore costs for a moment. Because if a strategy always underperforms, you can short that strategy, buy the market, and you have an arbitrage.
0: Right. So even if you bought, like a, a great example is buying expensive stocks have been a dumpster fire over the past whatever 60 years right and that's easy to show but that there are times where if you were short that bucket you would have your face ripped off absolutely you know and you see a lot of the expensive stocks ripping over the past year or two you know the these stocks that have price to earnings ratios 50 100 but at times and, and i think greenblatt's got a great example of that people used to always asking why why wouldn't you use your magic for me along short he said because you would go broke you know it's, that's it's exactly too hard right
1: that's exactly right. And so when I say can't always work, I mean consistently day in or day out or even week in, week out, month in, month out. Things like value may work over the long run, but they can go decades. That strategy can go decades underperform.
0: The only, the only one that I know that would probably be a consistent safe bet would be taking the other side of Jeff's option trades. <laughs> we, we need like an automated service that'll just like take the other side every time he plays an option trade. Jeff loves option trading. Let's start do some quick hits. Doesn't have to be quick. You just start to ask some questions on various topics, various papers. We got a few Twitter questions for people who wanted to ask you. We'll go with two or three of these. Ask you can answer as long or short as you want. Should we be holding more cash?
1: Yeah. So that paper I wrote was simply a question of when you look at conventional modern portfolio theory, the idea is you should hold what is the sharp optimal portfolio, and you should either lever it up or you should put some cash in the portfolio to de-risk it. And yet what you tend to see most investors do is not actually include cash when they want to be more conservative. They tend to actually do what is suboptimal and just go towards less risky asset classes. And so my question was, should you really be taking this barbell approach? Riskier assets plus cash will actually give you a better return, despite the fact most investors don't want to sit on cash. And what I found was that it in today's market it really doesn't make too big a difference but just a consideration for the future most people think of cash as being assets that they haven't put to work when in reality if you can have that cash on the sidelines that allows you to invest in a riskier asset class it might be better from a portfolio perspective
0: cash has a very real psychological benefit to a lot of people of just the optionality of not being all in you know so many people they they want to be fully invested. And then when when things start to hit the fan, it's really tough for them because they have no powder to work with. Right? right. So even if your return is suboptimal, having some cash, I think, is is probably a good mental health.
1: I think it's also hard for people, especially those people who work with financial advisors, to see their advisors sitting on cash and potentially taking a fee on that cash. And again, the use of cash in a portfolio, even if even if it's not just 2%, it could be 10, 15, 20 may allow you to create a portfolio that has a better return and risk profile but most people don't want their advisor sitting on cash so it go- there is a very psychological aspect to the utilization of cash and creating optimal portfolios the phrase
0: that's not what i'm paying you for exactly hear that, hear that a bit all right next is dividend
1: investing dangerous so this was actually largely inspired by you, Meb. Good. Because you talk about dividend investing all the time. And I think this post was really, you know, you talk about both dividends being suboptimal from a tax perspective. Really, the exploration was what is dividend investing? Why invest in high yield dividend stocks? And what we really found in this piece was evidence that high yield dividend stocks are just bad value stocks and drag. But there might be an argument for dividend growth, that that those two are not necessarily the same, that if you're investing in dividend growth, there may be what you're really investing in is the reinvestment factor and sort of a quality factor and a profitability factor. But dividend yield explicitly as an investment methodology is just sort of bad value.
0: It has to be up there for me for an investment concept or brand with the most assets with the most nonsense in my mind. There's probably not a fund complex out there of the top twenty that doesn't have a dividend fund.
1: Yeah, and again, I think dividends on their own, right? I, I would bucket the two. I would say there's dividend yield and dividend growth. And and I'm still mixed on dividend growth. I certainly understand the tax implications. So you have to have an asset location strategy there. Dividend yield, just investing in the highest yielders, to me yield might be something you can consider as part of your value strategy. But as you mentioned, there's much more efficient ways to get value and probably much better ways to get value.
0: It's like, you know, the the one kind of tell too, is that if you look at a dividend yield, quartile, quintile, decile, when you have factors, you in general want to see a, a nice stair step. And right. dividend is one of these wonky ones where the top decile quartile is worse than the next, you know, bucket, because you end up in these junky stocks that have a bunch of debt and are paying out a ton of the cash flows as dividends, and they actually underperform the next bucket, which is rare. You don't see many factors that kind of look that don't
1: have that. The, yeah, you get that nice monotonic yeah. increase. Yeah.
0: I don't know why that is. All right, let's go to Twitter. Let's see what some of these tweeps had to ask you today. Usually we get a few nonsensical okay. ones. All right, ready. Ask, how about whether to or how to incorporate country interest rates into global allocations. Wow, not really sure exactly what that means, but you can take the country question, and interest rates, run with it. Sure, I mean, uh, that's I an mean, inter- I, I, I'm assuming. Let me rephrase the question for Brad, and it probably means something along the lines of you know, one, in your bond allocation, does it make sense globally to allocate to carry? So are you looking at interest rates at all there? And two is that a input to any of your equity valuation models. I mean that that's probably sort of two different I'm guessing do they play a role where if interest rates are 8% in Brazil does that change how you look at things versus 2% here?
1: Right. Uh, so I was I was going to mention immediately carry. Most of what we focus on when we build portfolios are the incorporation of strategies that already exist in some sort of packaged product. So there's mm-hmm. not a lot of vanilla carry strategies that are available. Um, I think carry's got a, a great track record as as an investment methodology. I find it's hard for most traditional investors to get access to in some sort of very basic, you know, ETF or mutual fund. So we don't include it a lot, um, but I certainly recognize the strength of carry. From a asset allocation perspective, what we tend to see is most common. And again, having a very U.S. perspective is, you don't tend to get, should I invest in you know Japanese 10 years versus German 10 years? You just get U.S. and non-U.S. And in that non-U.S., you do get a big blend of what are sort of global interest rates. But it's less of a consideration of country by country and more of a global perspective blending it all together.
0: Great. Next question. Um, I think you kind of answered the, Oh, it's funny. You got another second part of the question was discuss risk adjusted carry and use in bonds. Uh, part one, thoughts on valuation based market timing for all asset classes. Okay. That's kind of, that's a hard one, by the way. is, yeah, is I'll, I think I'll it, jump
1: into it though. Going, going that's cross. Deep end.
0: Yeah, that's deep end. Cross <laughs> asset allocation valuation is tough because if you look at just like global stocks, you can compare them on valuation metrics we start to compare stocks to bonds to real estate to commodities
1: yeah what do you think so this is actually uh, another one i wrote about a couple weeks ago i think in a commentary it is very difficult right so when you look at there's a couple things you got to address first of all what does it mean to be cheap or expensive in fixed income versus what does it mean to be cheap or expensive in commodities versus what does it mean to be cheap or expensive in equities or currencies you know your each asset class is going to have its own definition Let's say you do come up with that definition. Well, then the question is, how do you compare across definitions? So you might say it's price to book or price to earnings or CAPE for different countries. But then on the fixed income side, it might be real yield. So now I have all these countries and their 10-year bonds, and I'm looking at real yield, and I'm looking at CAPE for equities. Well, how do I compare a CAPE of 30 to a real yield of 2%? Well, that's not necessarily obvious, so then you have to solve that problem. And then from there, even assuming you figure that out, you then have to take into account, You know, traditionally with factors, you look at building long-short portfolios. Well, depending on what's on your long half versus what's in your short half, you're going to have a very varying risk profile. So if I go long stocks and short bonds, you are now actually in an equal dollar amount. You're way more allocated to equity volatility than bond volatility. So you need to then take into account portfolio construction. So it's very non-obvious how to do those three steps. What we tend to see is that you don't build multi-asset factors the same way you build equity factors because a lot of that stuff is addressed. If I am talking about, call it the value factor where I buy cheap stocks and sell expensive ones, a lot of those things are already addressed. The same measurements work across all stocks so I can just use price the book. And it's consistent. And it means the same thing. When I do dollar neutral long short, for the most part, both sides have an equal amount of volatility that they're contributing. So a lot of these things go away. On the multi-asset side, what you tend to see is that you use these different factors to adjust the expected return of an asset class. And then you run some sort of optimization. Because one of the things you want to be cognizant of is when you're building a multi-asset portfolio, What is sort of your target risk profile and what does it mean for diversification give up? So to go back to sort of stocks, if you're buying a value portfolio, one way to think about that is you're buying the market plus a value long short on top. And you're really not, if you have a 60-40 portfolio and you incorporate value, you're not changing your overall risk profile. You're not changing your overall internal amount of diversification. You might be actually adding some diversification by adding that active risk component. Going back to the multi-asset framework, you can really meaningfully change how much risk you have embedded. And that's one of the things that I think makes global tactical so difficult is that very often you're explicitly foregoing diversification opportunities in pursuit of return. And you need to be constantly cognizant of Where are the risks that you're taking, uh, and what extra risks are you adding in pursuit of these returns?
0: You know, and it's it's something we were thinking about the other day is that a lot of active managers, and this is natural when you're looking at a strategy and it goes through a hard time, they'll write an article or do something basically calming investors, saying, "Look, we've seen this before. We've underperformed by this much before." But the biggest challenge in investing, there will come a point. Where we haven't seen it before and it gets worse. Right. And a challenge I think for a lot of investors is at what point do you cry, Uncle, give up with a strategy, to say it's broken, and what time do you over rebalance, add more to the strategy and, and say, you know, let's this is simply a drawdown and let's let's, you know, put more in. And that's a t- I think that's a tough question to answer. Do well, you have I any thoughts es- on
1: that? Especially with value, right? I mean value is such a long term mean reversionary type strategy that when you say to someone, "Hey, I think that uh, there's going to be some mean reversion here, but it might take seven to ten years," that can be very hard to place a trade on and stick with. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal a phrase from Cliff Asness, where he said in a Bloomberg re- interview recently, he doesn't get excited about valuation-based trades until things hit their hundred fiftieth percentile, which obviously isn't a real thing, sure, right? But sure. but his point basically being, look if if equities are in their 80th percentile historically of being expensive, it doesn't really mean anything. That they not only need to be at the 100th percentile, but they need to be in weird new highs or weird new lows for him to really want to put on a meaningful trade. So you look at something like equities in the late 90s, right? They hit that 100th percentile, and I think they went up like another 100, 150 maybe even 300% from there. I
0: missed that bubble. That was such a great bubble. I love it. I we need another good bubble. Hopefully this crypto crypto bubble will just keep keep expanding. It's it's it it creates a lot of opportunities on both sides. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. missing
1: a little bit. But long story short there is I think valuation based timing is very very difficult. So when I say equities are overvalued, I don't mean that to imply there has to be a crash. I just simply mean the evidence Directs us to the idea that we should mute our expected returns a little bit, yeah, I mean, you think back
0: to so many examples in history, and this is why I think being a market historian is so important, like the long term capital is such a great example of people that were betting on spreads and leveraging it, and then something happened, and you have spreads that had never seen before, right. and they go broke and, but creates opportunity for other people and so many things in market history. You know, Russian stock market closing, world wars, you know, everything in between creates these sort of environments. 1987, we've never seen before. And it'll be, that's what makes this fun and interesting.
1: Yeah. You know, I think Brendan Maluli had a had a great post the other day, which, which was saying, look, it's very easy to point out the asset classes that should mean revert. It's very hard to know when they're going to mean revert. It's very easy to say right now, U.S. equities are overvalued. Historically, they are knowing when that's actually going to revert back to normal valuations is very very difficult.
0: It'll probably just go sideways for like 10 years and, and just frustrate everyone on both sides to no end. If they did if they just did like 3% a year, how right. how wonderfully Wait for you. earnings to catch yeah. up. A Couple more questions and we're going to have to let you go cuz it's already been an hour one. So you've done a ton of I mean how many weekly pieces have you put out? Hundreds?
1: Yeah, I'm at the, I'm probably at 150 at this point.
0: So Probably do what we do is start recycling the old material, just start republishing stuff from 2008. Just kidding. What What are you working on? So you've covered a lot of ground. What What are you thinking about today? What's kind of like on the back burner? What What are you excited working about? Thinking about kind of going forward? Any sort of projects
1: that got you? Yeah, marinating on. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, a lot of what we did historically were those satellite type portfolios, very vertical in a specific asset class. And that last question. Dovetails very nicely into a lot of the research we're doing now, which is how do you construct multi asset factor portfolios? How do you think about taking value and applying it not just within an asset class, but across asset classes? And how do you think about building unconstrained portfolios to incorporate these ideas with the recognition that you need to maintain a consistent risk profile for a balanced investor? You need to be cognizant of the diversification give up that you might be taking. And so a lot of that is where our research is focused today. The application of value, momentum, carry, defensive and trend styles and their application to multi-asset investing.
0: Looking forward to the next white paper, The Weird Portfolio, How to Put It All Together. We always ask this question. In your career, personally, or allocating for clients, has there been a most memorable Investment or trade, what, and what, what do you what do you do with all your money? Do you just park it in CDs, or are you investing in kind of the same sort of things y'all publish? What's the what's been the most memorable?
1: Yeah, so the most memorable for me was when I was getting started, mm-hmm. and I think when when everyone gets started in this industry, the very common theme I hear is everyone reads, you know, some Warren Buffett. They read security analysis. They read you know, and the Intelligent Investor, and everyone fancies themselves the next great value stock picker. And then they pick a stock, and it absolutely goes up in flames. So I had I had this micro cap stock that I had found. A company was called Deep Down. Oh, my God. Great name. And it did... Wait, do you want to guess what it does, Jeff? Any
0: thoughts? Deep
1: Down. It's a quilting
0: company. <laughs> Ocean, I'm going Ocean Exploration.
1: Yeah, it was similar to Ocean Exploration. It did a lot of the hardware for Ocean Exploration. Oh, so chicken helping, dinner. Yeah, helping oil companies try to identify good areas to further explore, providing them with all the tubing and that sort of stuff. And it was sort of a industrial's play, I guess, and uh it was a dollar. And I got in and it went up to two dollars, and I thought I was a genius doubled down and it went to 10 cents and it was just one of those you know perfect examples for me of were they based out of utah or vancouver it seems like
0: all the frauds that you end up all these pink sheet companies somehow are utah or vancouver
1: and for me actually it was a reminder and probably the last time i ever picked a stock I went from that point, 100% quantitative. Uh, My employees always make fun of me and say I am the most emotional person they know for a quant investor. And it's one of the reasons I am quant is is I recognize that I'm not immune just because I know about all the behavioral deficiencies that we tend to have when it comes to investing. I'm not immune to them. And so I have found that every time we have a tactical signal change, and my gut is telling me to override it. I have been wrong 100% of the time, and it's why we never override the signals. There's, that's a good signal. You can start incorporating the anti cory signal. I have found the best signal I actually have is when I get a large number of calls of people concerned about the market, that that is almost always the exact bottom of the dip.
0: What are your investors and advisors? What's the biggest concerns today? Do they have any?
1: Yeah, the biggest concerns, actually, it's really interesting. Many advisors and investors that we speak to are very cognizant of the valuation risk. Most of them expect lower returns. Their concerns are all about, okay, what does that mean for portfolio construction? What does this mean for my retirement going forward?
0: Well, you guys just published something this morning on withdrawal
1: rates. we did. We did. Looking back and saying, well, if you had actually had lower sort of average returns over the last hundred years, what would that mean for retiring? But not just that, a lot of people are sitting on a lot of gains. And so there's a lot of advisors we talk to who say, I know I need to start transitioning my portfolio to incorporate things like managed futures and maybe trend following equity and other means of managing risk. But how do I do this in a tax efficient way? And how do I do this without upsetting my client if I start to make the transition and the market keeps running for another three years? So most people see, that we talk to seem to be aware that they want more risk control in their portfolio. But actually getting from A to Z is actually not as easy as just pulling the trigger.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that echoes almost the same, same conversations we've had. A lot of people say, look, I know stocks are expensive. I'm not sure what to do about it. Right. You know, in general. Who knows? Well, look, man, it's been awesome. Where do people go to find uh, more info
1: on y'all, your funds, your offerings, your writings, everything else? Where's the best place to follow you? Yeah, so the best place to follow us is uh, you can go right to our website, thinknewfound.com. You can get a link to our blog there. You can sign up for our weekly commentary. I publish that every Monday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern. And then you can find me on Twitter as well, C. Hofstein. At C. Hofstein. At C. Hofstein, thanks for stopping by today. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you for having me. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen. We always welcome feedback, Q&A, feedback at the showcom As a reminder, you can always find the show notes. We will hyperlink and add many of Corey and Cruz PDFs. That they'll let us in other episodes at com forward slash podcast. Subscribe show on iTunes and please leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thanks for listening, friends. Good investing.